Hey, welcome to number two. First episode was about pee shyness. Well, this is episode number two. No jokes there. No jokes to be made there. Uh, but uh, I'm doing one here in response to some feedback I got from a friend of the podcast, John. Uh, loyal, John's a loyal listener, and he, he uh, often, not often, but he, he'll occasionally uh, offer some fun reactions to things from the show or that are related to the show somehow. And in response to the episode yesterday about power-ups and everything else I went on about, he uh, brought up the metal band Stone Vengeance, and you know, somehow in the context, I don't know if it was in the context of power-ups or just kind of finding meaning through things. I don't, I don't know what it was exactly, that, but uh, I listened to that, and it was really good, uh, older kind of thrash, speed metal, not really my typical cup of tea, but it was good, it was unique and good. But anyway, that just has me thinking about heavy metal in general and its role in the current culture war. And I have decided to start calling what's going on the culture war. I know that I didn't make that up. I know that it's something that other people have been saying, and they may be people I agree with, they may be people I disagree with, but I think it's a very relevant phrase for what's happening right now in the United States and the world as a whole. And, you know, with the the heavy metal idea, I purposely didn't talk about that much when I was talking about power-ups and finding meaning or purpose that you can't quite understand and you just sort of feel. Uh, I purposely didn't talk too much about heavy metal, even though that was really the elephant in my brain. You've heard of the elephant in the room, but the elephant in my brain was metal because it's been such a, a large part of my life and been such a source of empowerment. Uh, and just that sort of sensation of, you know, you deriving some sort of like unspecified purpose or meaning in this world and tapping into some sort of warrior spirit and knowing you're not an ancient warrior, but somehow you feel a connection with that, and there's a reason why heavy metal uses those themes across all subgenres. Those are ideas you see. I focus on that sort of warrior spirit, even if it's the elephant in the room with whatever the band is. Even if a band never, you know, deals with that whole warrior aesthetic, warrior idea, it's almost the elephant in the room where you can still almost see the silhouette of it, hear the silhouette of it, hear the silhouette of an, of an elephant. That's like that's like something stupid Frank Zappa would have said. Talking about music is like trying to hear the silhouette of an elephant. Dancing about architecture. Um, now, I'm all about synesthesia these days. I'm all about, you know, hearing things that you can't see but are nonetheless visual. Who, who knows? This could just turn into gibberish. Here I was talking about getting meaning and some sort of identity from heavy metal music and the role heavy heavy metal heavy music heavy metal music plays in the culture war and we're just going to get into it like poetry let's just do poetry instead uh, I find poetry so empowering uh, but no with heavy metal and its role in the culture war uh, it doesn't really play a role it's interestingly not in pop culture much anymore you know it's as popular as ever heavy metal's huge. There's all kinds of people who like it. It, it. You know, people like new metal, old metal, and I'm not talking about NU. I'm talking about newer bands. It stays alive. Metal has stayed alive very well, uh, considering it hasn't been. You know, you don't see it on television that much. Maybe on America's Got Talent, you'll occasionally there'll occasionally be someone who does like metal vocals, and the judges are like, 
do these like fake big eyes where they're like, wow, I can't believe a sound like that came out of a little girl like you. You know, it's like that kind of shit, bad accent, but it might as well be that bad. Um, occasionally you'll see it like dip in and out and it's online, it's everywhere. Uh, but it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Metal has managed to stay alive as well as it has. And I purposely don't talk about it much because even though it's, you know, a vital part of my life, just cause I am very particular about it. And I think that I have more differences with someone who likes the same exact music I do, but like slightly different than I do somebody who likes like the, the complete opposite of whatever I like. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost like, uh, like that crack it's like you could be standing right next to somebody and there's a crack in the ground separating you and it's like a centimeter wide but it goes down so deep that you're just like i can't talk to that person they like the second blasphemy record more than the first you know it's like that kind of thing where uh those sorts of splitting of hairs just like the war it's just like the wars in the middle east that i talked about you know where you have like muslim factionalism where somebody has a slightly different interpretation of the quran and that leads to this much greater divide in the same way that i talk about anytime in the same way that there's bullying in groups of friends where there's more animosity animosity in a group of friends it's almost like the more similar you are to someone the closer you are the more you have in common the more like you're both into this weird niche subgenre that has very few fans and yet this one disagreement this one relatively minor disagreement means you can't even talk to that person and you want nothing to do with them and that's a teenage thing too, you know. Teenagers—that's when you start to see people get really opinionated about TV, or about might as well be TV. I'm going to start calling music TV. <laughs> I don't know the difference. Synesthesia—that's a form of synesthesia—is that I think music is TV now. Uh, but people do it about TV as well. It could be anything. Uh, music just seems to be something that really draws this out of people, though. You know, yeah, there are academics who split hairs over this. There are people in art galleries arguing over fine art. But music seems to be very accessible because it, it seems to be this necessity for all of us. We all need music. We all gravitate toward music. Uh, and in doing that, we all develop taste or, you know, believe we have taste or this or that. And then that just leads to, you know, getting highly specific opinions, even if they're totally unjustified. It's interesting how music like brings out that need for elitism, like this false elitism, almost immediately after you get interested in it. You know, once you're a teenager and you actually start, you know, picking and choosing the music that you want in your life, whether it's mainstream or not, you know, because it's not just something you see with people who are into like niche or quote unquote underground music. You know, it's something you actually see with all people where, you know, I had those friends and, and new people who, you know, thought, whatever they listen to. They might think Radiohead is the best thing ever and we're snobs about that and, you know, what I listen to might have been garbage to them and, you know, vice versa. It's just, it doesn't really, it, people will develop that seemingly from any place or, or area of taste. They seem to just do that. Uh, but I, I do find that, you know, a lot of my friends in high school actually listened to, you know, very different music than I was into. I was into much heavier, you know, whether it was metal or just experimental music that I was getting into. I was more into that. And they tended to be into softest stuff. They liked the soft stuff. But I found that it was actually really easy to kind of coexist with them because I just knew that they liked something completely different. 
And sometimes there'd be a little crossover, you know, like I remember, you know, just little things here or there. I was like, oh, yeah, like someone played me like that indie rock, like synth band, The Faint, you know, because my friends were all into that indie rock stuff. And I was just like, I can get into that, you know, whatever, like that, you know, just an old electronic sort of sound. I can get into that, you know, just for the sake of friendship, if nothing else, you know, just having that sort of common thing that you can listen to in the car with somebody and not just ruin their day, because that's what happens. Like you, that's exactly what I'm talking about, where someone's in the car and someone puts something on, they toss in a CD from their big booklet of CDs and the person who doesn't like that is just they're they're just compromised they're angry they're it's miserable you know it's worse than anything to them is is having to listen to music that they don't like and at best it's got to be just you know I don't know and you got to find these compromises we got to compromise but that is an interesting thing that happens with music in particular where we do find that we learn these skills of compromise in getting interested in that stuff and the same way there are these great divides where it's like you'll meet somebody who, you know, their their favorite genre is like exactly the same as yours down to like the production quality and the aesthetic of the records, of the artwork. You know, they're into the same exact vein of weird music that you're into. And yet like this difference of opinion just ends up creating this huge divide. And the same way that happens, you know, music fans, and I've noticed this especially with metal, uh, you know, and, and, and much less with other people who are into other stuff, honestly, and maybe I've just missed out on it, I don't know, uh, but with metalheads in particular, you see this compromise happen, and not just like, oh, what are we going to listen to in the car, something we both don't hate, something we both don't hate. Uh, it's not even just that, it's, it's also just for the sake of conversation and discussion, you'll see people who are like oh you know this guy never liked a record that came out after 1985 and he thinks like gutter old death metal is just garbage uh whereas like your favorite band is like jungle rot and devourment and you really can't see to eye to eye even though you both are into metal you're both metalheads as far as the aliens are concerned looking down you're the same person but to you two you're like oh we can't we can't see eye to eye I like, you know, palm muted just gr- with growls over it, you know, and this person likes nice, you know, Judas Priest leads, you know, it's that sort of thing. But those people will kind of end up finding common ground. They'll be like, what about Iron Maiden? And Iron Maiden is one of those bands. You know, I love Iron Maiden. And it's like, they might as well be the Nike logo, though, as far as heavy metal goes. You know, Iron Maiden might as well be Nike. Like, you see someone wearing an Iron Maiden shirt, and it's not like, oh, my God. It's like my friend Robert talked about, he said this years ago, and I just thought it was funny, where he was like, you know, there was a point, a time, point in time, like, in the late 90s, where, like, I would chase somebody three blocks down the street just because they walked by wearing a Satyricon shirt. You know, and now we live in this age where you see like all this underground shit or you talk to somebody who's like in a band shirt of a band you don't even like, but it's close enough to where like maybe maybe you need to know this person. Maybe there's maybe you don't know anybody else who listens to like anything remotely like you. So, hey, there's a person in like a oh, I don't really give a fuck about neurosis, but they're in a neurosis shirt. And so, hey, there's somebody I can talk to about heavy music or, you know, Robert chasing somebody three blocks down the street just to like talk to them about a Satyricon shirt. Um, but like Iron Maiden, you know, you see an Iron Maiden shirt and like, I'm not going to talk to somebody about that. You know, I love Iron Maiden. It's a power up band for sure. You know, I don't listen to them that often anymore. But like when I, a couple of weeks ago I was working out and I decided to listen to a couple Iron Maiden albums and that really, I got a little bit of an advantage in that workout. I really did. 
Uh, it was definitely a major power up. Uh, yet here's this thing that powers me up in private, powers me up in private, and yet I'm not going to go up to someone at the grocery store who's wearing an Iron Maiden shirt, and I'm not even going to say, nice shirt, thumbs up, nice shirt. Because to me, that's just like seeing the Nike logo. It's like being like, oh, I'm in Nike shoes, you're in Nike shoes, uh, let's be friends. Because, uh, you know, at this point, it's kind of like that. But that doesn't take anything away from Iron Maiden. And it's cool that you do see Iron Maiden shirts everywhere because they're a great example of what I'm talking about where people can compromise over it. People who are into metal and, you know, have differences in opinion can find common ground over bands like Iron Maiden. And there are, of course, many others, you know. But that's just the easiest example is a band like Iron Maiden who appeals to a lot of people. Judas Priest is another. Black Sabbath. And that doesn't mean I even want to talk about those bands. Like, I'm not someone who's really going to have much to say about them. But you can at least be like, okay, we both see this. We both, this is a thing that we both appreciate. That's as, It's as simple as that. And no, it's like I'm probably not going to want to have a conversation about Black Sabbath with a stranger at this point. I mean, there was actually a situation a few months ago where some friends and I were met a group of guys through music who... uh and like an older metal guy like brought up Black Sabbath it was like, do you like Black Sabbath? And we were all just kind of like, oh, well, of course, but there's not really much more to say. You know, I, I can't I'm not one of these old guys who can just sit there and like riff on Black Sabbath for hours. Uh, I could, you know, if it's with a friend of mine or something, but you know, I have to be in a specific mood to talk about something that's been talked about and that is so self-evident. Because stuff like that, it's just so self-evident. Iron Maiden is self-evident. Black Sabbath is self-evident. Even if you don't for some reason like it, it still speaks for itself. Uh, but that's a, a part of the game is this compromise where it's it's a little thing. You don't even realize you're doing it. And as opinionated and, and juvenile as you are about your taste and, you know, this matters. And I, I'm totally that way. I'm totally juvenile about, you know, the importance of like specifics and all of this and, and that. And despite all of that familiarity breeds contempt where it's like, oh, this person's so similar to me, but this minor difference makes me hate them, makes me want to go to war with them. I can't put up with them. Uh, and that's one thing people don't realize when they do say things to you. Sometimes you'll have a friend who like wants to play like friend matchmaker where they're like, I've got a friend who is into metal and you guys would be best friends. And it's so good natured and so nice, but it's like, until you actually sit those people down, <laughs> you're, re you're really not going to know. And like, I feel like the deeper you get into some like nuanced or niche interest, the more likely those people are going to have a hard time being friends, at least initially, depending on what they've been through. Because, I mean, I'm at a point now where it's like I don't I'm not nearly as like dogmatic and stuff about taste as I was when I was like 17 or 19 for that matter or 29 for that matter or 40 for that. No, in the future, I'm going to become dogmatic again. I'm going to become really dogmatic about everything. But no, as much as that stuff is common ground, it's also kind of boring to talk about. And there's a reason why those those sorts of bands are such obvious examples of bands that we all like. Here's some bands we all like. We can all ride in the car together. We can all ride in the quad. Um, but yeah, metalheads have that you know ability to compromise, ability to kind of like see the bridge between them. And as much as familiar familiarity breeds contempt, and having like a close niche thing that you're opinionated opinionated about will put you in conflict with other people. 
uh, over their own like perspective and opinions. And some of that's fun. A lot of that's good natured. I mean, that's the thing is so much of that is good natured. It's kind of like I can only have these kinds of arguments with certain people and I can appreciate that. And that's something that we should actually apply toward everything we discuss in this world. Uh, everything should even heated arguments about core life values should have a similar approach. You know, we should be able to go back and forth about it. Why do you like this record? Well, I like this record for this, you know, and I don't understand why you like that one at all. You know, we should be able to do that about anything and just in the end, though, be like, Iron Maiden. What's the uh, political Iron Maiden? See, we got to look for those sorts of things. What's the political equivalent to Iron Maiden or Black Sabbath? Or Slayer, for that matter. At this point, I'd accept a Slayer. Because sometimes that's a thing where you end up like you retroactively get into something older. Cause like when I got into metal and I don't want to talk about my personal taste at all, really, but just one thing I'll say, while I'm talking about the classics is, uh, Slayer was not a band I got into right away. Metallica was probably one of the first metal band. Yeah. It must've been the first metal band I ever got into because my sister was older and into that. And so I got into Metallica and Metallica through osmosis, uh, Metallica through osmosis, uh, but uh, I got into them through that, but that w- didn't really start my own individual interest in metal, which came a few years later. Uh, but I kind of missed Slayer on my initial little run, and by that I mean like it took me like a year of being into metal that were where I really got into Slayer or something. You know what I mean? Because you, when you're first exposed to all that stuff, you you kind of, especially getting into it in like 2001 or whenever that was, you know, you end up like being exposed to so much so quickly. And that was before you could access everything immediately. There was some file sharing, you know, you could get a taste for things online, but you couldn't really immerse yourself in a band or a genre online at that point, at least not in most cases. Uh, So you had to do a little legwork. And but even then, just having the Internet at all, even for like ordering music, not just for listening, but even just being able to order anything you want that's in print or available or there's eBay if it's out of print, whatever. Uh, And just having access to things that quickly meant like, yeah, you know, you end up burning through a lot of different stuff real quickly. And it's easy to take that for granted. It's very easy to just like burn through things, even then where there was a little bit more effort. I think I even had like a standalone CD burner that like didn't work. So I had to, I think I had to like, or no, I think I, I, I went through this phase where I couldn't listen to anything on my computer. Like my audio card stopped working for some long amount of time. And so I couldn't actually listen to any MP3s or anything. And I had to burn them onto a standalone CD player and then put that in the stereo. So it was this very involved process where I couldn't just listen to things on my computer, even if they were available for download, which not everything was. And now you have even YouTube. You know, that's why you can't predict the future is like, I never would have thought that every obscure tape, demo, record, everything would be available on YouTube, you know, in the 2010s. You know, it's not a huge surprise, like people put music videos, oh, it turns out you can put songs up with just like a basic image behind them, you can upload music to YouTube, make it streamable. It's not mind-blowing why that happened, but I would not have predicted that. I would not have predicted that the the weird little video site, when it started out, would end up being a way to access all music ever created across time, pretty much. 
but now you can do that. And, it, you know, I, I think people do take it for granted, although I don't really care that much about that. You know, it's like, oh, well, I guess kids are just burning through things. They don't have to sit and listen to records they don't like because they can just skip them and they can listen to everything. You know, it's all a click away. I don't really mind that, you know. I don't. I don't think we have to hold on to that. There's this illusion that there's still a music underground, and you'll see people who are kind of trying to hang on. They'll they'll try to promote that idea. They'll be like, support the underground, support underground metal, and I think there's still an underground mentality. I think there's still kind of a set of uh, not rules but guidelines, and it includes you know appreciating certain aesthetics appreciating certain processes and approaches you know supporting some level of tradition uh, in terms of the medium that you're using to listen to music and and look at music cuz since we're talking about synesthesia you also got to look at music uh, but uh you know, you know, we're in this age where I don't believe there's any actual like underground. In an age when kids can seriously get it all right away, and again, I don't say that with any bitterness. It's just how it is. Uh, I don't think you can really kind of pretend those exact values exist, or that there actually is an under underground. There's values, you know. There's there's still a certain way of doing things that is tried and true, and is worth maintaining, maybe. Uh, but uh, it's it's also I think anybody who is pretending there's still some sort of musical underground is either it's either a marketing ploy or they are delusional or both some combination more likely. Uh, and it's it's an attempt to get support from people because we're in we're in an age where they don't have to do that. In the same way I was talking about, you know, you look at a picture of your parents and think it's so cool that they have a record player and, and a record collection, and it's like no, that was that's paganism. You know, they're, they're, uh, it's a nature documentary. It's like they, that was what was available to them. That was the only way they had to listen to music. And it was cool. And it is cool. And I have records and I listen to records. But it's like when you, you can't retcon your parents, you can't be like, look at how hip my parents were because they had a record player back when that was all there was. You, know, you can't retcon your parents. I started to enjoy that new word that people use since I'm all about the new words. Not an early adopter, but I'm a late adopter to new words, and I like retcon. If you're not familiar, it's like retroactive continuity. It's like basically what a, a movie or series does when something that was said or done earlier in the series doesn't match up with like the narrative being told later in the story. They'll add something to the story that somehow explains why there was that continuity error. So it's called retconning. In history, it's called revisionism. It's what happens in basically every history book, and this isn't some uh, what uh, what's his name even. Uh, this isn't some like Chomsky Zin like history books are all written by the victor, even though a lot of that's true. It's like history books are also written by the losers. There's a lot about you know I don't know history books are written by everybody. <laughs> history books are written by everybody. Don't listen to your college professor. A lot goes into history books beyond just the victor going, look what we did and how right we were, although that's a part of it. Um, but historically, it's called revisionism. Uh, and don't be a revisionist. Don't, don't, be, don't be a parental revisionist. Don't look back at pictures of your parents and think that they were doing anything other than just what was natural at the time. They were pagans. And I think that pagans, speaking of like metal and paganism, I think pagans can kind of take you know some of the same cues where it's like you have these people who are in these basically LARPing communities. They're basically LARPing that they're 
their ancestors. They're like, look it, I dress like my ancestors. We burn this. We all stand in a circle and we chant and we drink this homemade wine. I don't know, whatever they do, whatever your pagan, Wiccan, Asatru, whatever group it is, you know, and that stuff's cool. I think keeping that stuff intact is cool. I wear my Thor's hammer necklace when I feel like it. And it was activated by a summer lightning storm some years back. I, you know, I'm not going to say I don't have my own pagan beliefs that somehow, you know, make me feel some bridge to my ancestors. And some of that involves their imagery and their ideas. But you do have these groups that kind of get together. And I think the sense of community is great. I think in this alienating world, having a sense of community that's based around some kind of ancestral model. I feel really smart saying that. <laughs> a sense of community based on some ancestral model is healthy. And uh, there's a reason why we naturally gravitate toward that. And so these pagan groups that appear where it's like the girls dress like they're going to a Renaissance fair and the guys wear like those, what are basically like, you know, <laughs> burlap sacks like with like a V-neck cut into them and worn like a blouse, whatever that's called. Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, people want to dress up and they want to be like, well, I, you know, I'm doing something right because I'm just like my ancestors. And it's like your ancestors were doing what was available to them. Like your pagan ancestors were modern. You know, the stuff they were doing might as well have been a smartphone. Like they might as well, when they were holding up like a, like a burning stick that represented <laughs> something, uh, that might as well have been a smartphone. You know, fire was probably relatively new to them at the time. You know, uh, you know, fire was technology. Fire was entertainment. Uh, they were much closer to, you know, the first guy who rubbed sticks together, that kind of thing. So it's not like they were just necessarily choosing their conditions and their aesthetics, although they, they were. I think the great thing about all of that is it's like, oh, yeah, my ancestors took control of their lives and they came up with like designs for what they wore and rituals. And that gave them a sense of control and connection with the world around them, control over themselves and their group and, you know, a relationship to the earth and just some kind of connection. And there's a reason why all of that, all tribal mysticism is centered around a connection to the earth. I mean, you see it with all these groups, all all of these people. Uh, it doesn't matter where in the world. It's that seems to be the common theme. And uh, but uh, you can't look at it. You got to look at it as a nature documentary. You can't necessarily think of it as like a model for how you should live. Like, are you not? Are you not somehow? Are you somehow worse than your ancestors because you use a smartphone? Are you somehow worse than your ancestors because you wear the current fashions? I mean, I think there's good reason to challenge the current fashions. There's a good reason to challenge what we're doing in modernity or at least question it. You don't always have to challenge it, but you should question it and consider what it's doing to you and what the, the value of it is. Uh, but you can adopt your own form of paganism that doesn't necessarily just mimic your ancestors in some sort of like live action role play theater, you know? And then if you want to do that, I'm not even criticizing that. I'm just, I want people to know that just what it is. I mean, I, I feel like I'm just saying what it is. And, and to me, it's like a form of escapism and it really is no different than going to a Renaissance fair. And if you're looking for escapism, that's a good place because I fucking love Renaissance fairs. Always have. It, it's a, a freak show. It's like a county fair, but everybody's medieval. You know what I mean? It's like, what? Why wouldn't you want that? Um, uh, 
And I always like when people wear their metal shirts. Like it's funny. Like you'll see Bathory and Graveland shirts uh, at Renaissance fairs sometimes because it's like those are the bands that lend themselves to that. You know, you'll see pagan metal shirts, and I love that crossover. I love that that happens. I mean, it's a given. Of course, that happens, but. Because uh, metal's a great example. I mean, metal's a great example of as much as you have bands, pagan metal bands, who are just doing a form of live action role play where they really are just LARPing on stage or on their, you know, their photos, their aesthetic. Uh, a lot of it is modern. I mean, they're using modern mediums to communicate these things. They're using modern instruments to communicate melodies that if they're not just like directly stealing from, you know, Celtic melodies and, and stuff because that's not the kind of pagan metal I really get into. I don't really like it when they're just like covering Renaissance songs. You know, that's not really my thing. I like it when they come up with their own melodies. But even the unique and new melodies that come through pagan metal, uh, even those tap into something ancient. They sound European, for example. There's something European about them, even if they're not just basically covering some traditional European song. There's a sensibility to them. Uh, but they're using these modern instruments. They're using this modern stuff. And in many cases, they're coming up with their own modern ideas. They're interacting with the world around them. And I think a great example of that is uh, you know, a band like Burzum, where it doesn't matter what you think of him, his politics. It's not about you know, necessarily using him as an example of how you should live your life or anything like that. But you look at the reason Burzum was so popular is not because of the infamy. It's not because of this or that. Sure, that gave... That made it might have made him popular with the wrong people, but if you look at the people who just fundamentally have an appreciation for what he did in terms of music and just pagan philosophy, uh, it it was uh, his own thing. You know, he wasn't just you know it, you see the evolution of what he did, and it, and it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just role playing. It was adaptive to the modern age. And you saw that like when he got out of jail and started immediately making YouTube videos and made like his own board game. It's like that's a guy who he's going to do what he can with the tools that are available, available to him because that's what pagans do. That's what a pagan person does is they make use of whatever is available to them with the tools that are in front of them as long as those tools aren't going to destroy them in some way. And that's the real trick. Because that's what people are afraid of. When people like get into these like pseudo like Luddite like you know uh, living off the earth like basically pretending I'm an animal, hiding out in the woods all the time. When people get into that, it, it does come from a place of fear that like everything modern is going to destroy what they value, and that's an identity. It's like oh no, it's like no different than people phone shaming, being like oh my god, I saw a girl today. She was on her phone for. A, the whole the whole time she was at dinner with her parents, I looked over. Every time I looked over, she was on her phone. Could you believe it? Meanwhile, you're meanwhile you're like looking at this girl the entire time. Would you rather be a girl looking at her phone, or would you rather be some busybody at a restaurant who's like looking at the girl looking at her phone? It's like you're looking at the girl looking at her phone more than she's looking at her phone. Uh, <laughs> that's not very pagan. That's not very pagan, but no, it's, it's paganism, I think, is adaptive. And it doesn't even really matter what you call it. Like, I've only become comfortable with the word paganism in the last few years 
uh, even though I have a lot of ties to that idea going back to when I was a teenager and I got interested in that kind of stuff. But I've really only been comfortable just throwing the word out there, just throwing it out in recent years because I realized how truly amorphous and adaptive and just I, I see the way paganism evolves and how multifaceted it, it is. And it's a source of empowerment, too. It's almost like a form of uh, philosophical empowerment, because that would be a whole other topic that I don't even think I'm, I'm ready to talk about, is the idea of philosophical empowerment. Metal taps into that. These sensory things that give us those sensations, whether it's a fight scene in a Bronx tale, whether it's uh, a metal song you like, it, doesn't, it really doesn't matter, you know, whether you're uh, a... You could be like a fourteen-year-old, like listening to Slipknot on on your way home from bur- your job at Burger King because you're mad at your boss, or you could be like sitting there with like scratching your chin, listening to some like soundscape by a black metal musician that makes you feel like an aristocrat standing in the woods. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter like what you're using, who you are, or, or how you're getting power upped by metal you know, ultimately that's more of like a, a sensual thing. It's it's something that's like interacting with you and you're getting kind of hyped in some way. Even if it's just making you want to cross your arms and take a picture of yourself in the woods, uh, it's still, it's getting you hyped in some way. Even if you don't want to admit it. Because that's a whole other thing. Like getting into metal and it making you feel hyped, but you don't want to like completely, uh, you don't want to headbang or like put the metal horns up. Because I, I, metal horns aren't my thing. Um but, uh, you know, really, there's no difference between, like, the 14-year-old listening to Slipknot hating his manager at Burger King versus, like, somebody who has some sophisticated taste in, like, very, uh, you know, eccentric, atmospheric, you know, pagan metal. You know, it's, it doesn't really matter. At, at the end of the day, that's a very, like, material relationship. That's a material power-up. A material power-up. It's like finding, like, a, you know, I don't know. It's like finding a, a power up in a video game, and uh, but there, you know, the philosophical power up is a whole other idea, and that's where you have to also be really careful because it's what a lot of people grab onto: ideology, you know, politics. They're getting that that power up through some sort of like almost a, a philosophical power up, but I think you can take it away from like any group belief system, any kind of ideology, and still kind of get that feeling. And I think if you can get in touch with some sort of basic pagan element and become comfortable with the fact that it's not just role play, that it's not just you know standing around dressed a certain way trying to talk like your ancestors and burning candles and shit. Like if you can be comfortable with the fact that it doesn't, it's not that and it doesn't have to be that and it can be that. But if you're comfortable with the fact that it is something more amorphous that you can truly feel on an individual level in a way that is not dishonest and is the culmination of all of your human experiences, that's fucking powerful. And what else are you going to need? You know, to have that kind of primer, you could sell all your records at that point. You could give up music at that point. You don't need to listen to music on your car stereo. You don't need to talk. You don't need to find common ground about Iron Maiden at that point. If you get to that point, that's that's truly fucking empowering. Uh, and I don't know if that's, I don't, you know, this is all very relatively new to me, very relatively new. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's still 
it's very empowering and it's also a, it's sort of that epiphany feeling where it's almost like something you always knew you always knew you had in you but it just hadn't been activated it's these things require some sort of activation um and so in that way, you know, metal has not just the art form itself is not only a great example of this adaptive paganism and the, and the fact that these people who listen to metal consider themselves pagans, whether they call themselves or not, they see themselves as that. And I have a lot of hangups about the subculture aspect of people who are basically trying to recreate these retro scenes from before they were of age. It's like... I don't see why, like, dressing the way metalheads dressed in 1987, I don't see how that's going to add anything to my life. And to me, that's a weird form of, like, I don't know, not retconning. It's not exactly the same thing as that, but it's sort of related, where it's almost like you're more focused on... You, you've put this time period on a pedestal, and you're like, oh, everything was better when metalheads all wore black leather jackets, had hair that was this long, and had, like, ripped-up jeans and high-top sneakers. Everything was just better then. It was just better, you know? And it's like, no, it, it's, it, that's not really it. That's not, that's not really, like, what—that that shouldn't be the goal of metal, because I think it, you end up with this social component that ends up, like, really indulgent, where it's like— all it is is just like, oh, a sense of community, which is great and exactly what I'm talking about. Like the sense of community it gives you is great and it does connect you to, to people in a way that is voluntary. Uh, and I don't know, it, there, there is a sense of community toward being into, some, into a form of music, in particular metal, that even if you don't share the exact same taste as someone, you do feel like you are a part of it. And that's impressive. But I think it gets really indulgent with this like subculture and like fashion, especially when it's like going for this retro thing. And like every five years, it's like, oh, now everybody's, you know, everybody's going for the, uh, you know, 80s uh, crossover, you know, punk thrash look where they wear the bandanas and then oh two years go by and we're all wearing gym shorts and like uh doing the florida death metal thing you know i don't i don't really like like those sort of like retro to me that's no different than like you know the renaissance fair pagans or whatever and again it's like do what you feel is cool and right and gives you something in this world i'm not criticizing anybody who does this i have friends who are like really you know, you look at them and you know that person's a metalhead and you know all the bands they like because they're like all over their, their jacket. And I used to be like that. You know, I you know, I had long hair when I was in high school. I had, you know, I, I started putting patches on things in, in high school, junior high, I think in ninth grade or something when I got into shit. It's like I start. I, oh, I want people to know what I like. I want to identify with this. But then after a couple of years, I was just like, oh, you know, I don't really feel like keeping this up. I don't really feel like just walking around like with just a list of bands all over me. And I still wear band shirts and stuff, but it's like I just I don't want to like walk around just like a I don't want to be a walking list of anything, honestly. I don't care if the logos are cool. <laughs> I don't care if the handwriting's cool. I don't want to be like a walking list at all and uh I don't know, it's it's just one of those things where it gets you get very indulgent and then you see where it just gets tribal all over again where here's this thing that was created as you know rebellion from this modern christian culture this 1950s short hair you know button-up shirt you know high water khakis and so what are you going to do to rebel against that oh grow my hair out wear leather uh you know wear ripped up shit and spikes of course it's like a, a blatant opposite you know i'm going to be the opposite of you dad 
Uh, I'm going to be the opposite of you, Dad. And that's what that is. But then that becomes a weird thing where if you're in that sort of metal community and you don't do that, people start like raising an eyebrow at you. And again, it's like the more juvenile side. It's like it's it's the same kind of person who is like, oh, uh, you like their second record, not their first record. Fuck off. You know, it's the same sort of mentality. And it can be fun to sort of do that. You know, it can be kind of fun to like joke around about that kind of stuff. But you do see it in in heavy metal subculture where it's like this thing that was based around subversion and not following norms uh, develops its own norms like every other group. And then if you don't follow those, doesn't matter how, how much you contribute, doesn't matter how diehard you are, there are people and some of them might be in the majority, depending, who don't think that you're the real deal. They don't think, oh, because you don't do exactly, oh, you don't pose for pictures with the uh, the claw hands, with like the heavy metal claw hands. Oh, and for me too, it's like, it's funny because like a dilemma I always have with metal is that I actually take it a lot more personally, seriously than like people who like make their entire life like I I'm the living embodiment of metal. Everybody knows I like I'm the metal guy. Hey, I'm the metal guy. Uh, I, I'm uh, I'm metal Rick. Everybody knows me as metal Rick. You know, it's like that person actually has like a like a pretty like lighthearted approach to it, which is probably healthy. You know, it's like they they pose with the claw hands. They you know, rock out, everybody knows, but, uh, you know, for me, it's like, I, I don't know, I guess because it's like, it does have that power up sensibility and it's like, it does speak to some ancient part of me that nothing else was speaking to growing up. And when it did speak to me, it was pretty profound. I think because of all that, it's not that I don't have a sense of humor about it. It's just that I don't want to like caricaturize it. Cause I do like, like some of my closest friends who have the closest taste to me, we will compare notes about bands and artwork and this or that. And we crack up at times because not even cause it's silly or stupid, but just cause like the thing that makes me laugh more than anything is just thinking like someone thought of that, you know, it doesn't matter what the intention is. The thing that entertains me more than anything is just knowing like someone came up with that. Someone's brain went there. And that's kind of my relationship to a lot of metal, like my sense of humor with metal. It's not like, oh, look at look at this, like the guy, like, uh, look at this drawing of like a, like a bat with like its eyes popping out. You know, it's not so much that. It's it's much more like, oh, wow, I can't believe uh, he, he they phrased that song that title that way. <laughs> Uh, I, oh, look at this weird way that look at this weird little thing that makes these guys weird or unique or like powerful in some way. Uh, here's something that caught my. Those are the things that make me laugh about something. They're not necessarily why I like something about heavy metal, but it's usually like just sort of like, oh, I can't believe they had the audacity or they had, they just had the creativity to think of that. Because uh, it doesn't matter how silly or serious something is. Sometimes like just the sheer fact that someone created it. And thought of it. It could be a totally sincere, earnest um, idea, you know, that, that doesn't, you know, have any, I don't know. I don't mean to go too far on that, because if you know what I'm talking about, you either know or you don't. Uh, but yeah, it does, it does make me feel kind of alienated from like being a metalhead sometimes, though, because it's like, oh, I don't, I don't really like caricaturizing it. It's not that I take it too seriously. It's just that I don't really like the caricatures that are perpetuated both inside of heavy metal and outside of it. And I understand this is all ridiculous to most people. He doesn't like the, the caric- caricaturization 
of heavy metal philosophy and and, and culture. No, it's and it's like, oh yeah, this, this is, here's one of those pretentious metalheads who takes himself too seriously. Absolutely, thank you. You know that, that's the truth. Uh, but uh, no, metal, as I was saying, it is a great example of like that sort of amorphous, not the band amorphous, but that amorphous adaptive paganism that has only really started to reveal itself to me more and more in the last couple of years. And what the end result of that is, if it goes anywhere else, I don't know. But I, I just have a stronger sense of it. I feel like in the world today, uh, it has some value, at least to me. And speaking of paganism, there's the outright, and this kind of goes hand in hand with the group identity aspect and like, oh, you have short hair and no tattoos? Uh, oh, you know, you don't fit in. Uh, it's the same sort of thing. Like if you say anything that's even remotely empathetic or sympathetic to not just Christianity, but even just good. Because, you know, so much of metal, traditional heavy metal dealt with good and evil. You think about Black Sabbath, that early foundation, uh, it's so much of that is kind of like this, this existential battle between good and, and evil, light and dark, which sounds really cliche and boring. But you see that a lot with two power metal. It's like a lot of it is about the hero and, and darkness and this sort of this sense of heroism where heavy metal was able to achieve, you know, something empowering and positive through embracing the model of the hero. And then, you know, more and more it started to also be like, well, I'm going to explore the dark side too, which is very awesome. And I mean, again, it's a reason I wouldn't even have ever known this, but it's very Jungian, you know, years later and loads of, you know, just pretentious bullshit floating around on my brain, like, you know, eyeball floaters, but they're on my brain, you know, or all these these things. And, uh, you know, you look at like Carl Jung, you know, the process of individuation requires exploration of the shadow, your dark side, owning the darkest depths that could potentially exist within you. And metal is a great way to do that. You know, especially as metal started to embrace those concepts, as metal started to say, not only are we going to deal with concepts of good and evil, we're going to look from the perspective of evil. We're going to be the dragon. We're going to be the, we're going to be Satan. We're going to praise those things. We're going to praise uh, Sauron. We're going to praise Sauron. You know, in Lord of the Rings, it's like, oh, you're, you're rooting for the hobbits the whole time. You're rooting for the good guys. And then, you know, Heavy Metal decided, hey, what about uh, the orcs? What about the orcs? You know, that's, that's kind of what ended up happening. It was like, well, we're going to explore the full spectrum of this. And I feel like in that way, early Heavy Metal was a little more balanced. Uh, dare I say even healthy. You know, you look at that where it was more like well we're trying to like understand the world through this weird pagan lens and we're going to use these almost biblical concepts of good and evil to do it and that's what you see in earlier heavy metal and then at some point though it just became we hate christians so much and and phone calls as well we hate christians and phone calls no but this you know juvenile just total rejection of christianity which there are some people where i feel so bad for them because they grew up in a heavily religious household and it has forever tainted any value they could potentially get out of religious ideas or just the idea of theology or god forbid spirituality itself and so they've totally rejected that and in no better way is that 
exemplified than in heavy metal where people were just like, we're just going to embrace the bad guys and try to be the bad guys and represent ourselves with that when at all possible. And that became the new norm. And then it was like, oh, you know, we can't like anything Christian, a Christian metal band that's an oxymoron. A Christian metal band's an an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron. Oxymoron. Oxymoran. That's my kid detective name. Another mystery solved by Oxymoran. Oxy would be a good name for a kid in this current opioid crisis world. This is my daughter, Oxy. Oxycotton. OC. Yo, this is my daughter, OC. What's that stand for? Oxycotton. My daughter, Oxycotton. Audible slurp. Yo, I'm Audible Slurp. Yo, I got a new record coming out. Um, I've thought about doing more rap voices. I used to have some. That wasn't really a good one. Uh, the rap voices, though, they all involve yelling. Like, I can't do them at a low volume. And I think it's probably better I don't do them. <laughs> For various reasons, I think it's better that I don't try to do any rap voices on here. I, I got to save. you know, there was that episode recently about creating more than destroying, trying to break a balance. If I start doing rap-influenced voices on this show, there's no balance. There's no creative. There's no plus side. There's just down. That's just down, down. Um, but, uh, yeah, to go back to Christianity, it's like there's this idea in metal where it's like if you express even... Not just anything about, you know, in, in heavy metal subculture, especially these, like, groups, these social groups that are built on that, uh, if you say anything that could be remotely construed as, you know, sympathetic to Christians, or let's not even go with the people themselves, just the ideas. If you say anything that could potentially suggest that you've given any consideration into these ideas and that they may potentially have some kind of meaning, people will drop you real quick. And everybody has some like secret band, like everybody likes Manila Road, which is great. And at the end of the day, you kind of have to ask yourself too, if you find yourself down this hole where you're like, oh, you know, like, I just want to be an orc. You know, what about the orcs? Because it, it goes pretty quickly between like, well, what about the orcs? You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to speak on behalf of the orcs and Sauron. And then that quickly becomes... You know, well, I'm just going to be an orc. I'm going to be Sauron. I'm going to be bad. And I think it's a lot healthier to, if you're going to use metal as any kind of guideline in your life, like, do you want, would you rather be Manila Road or would you rather be Beharit? You know what I mean? And I like Beharit. And one of the reasons I like metal and one of the reasons why, no matter what changes in my life, why I like having metal and I, and why I haven't abandoned my taste in that is because it's examples. You have examples in this genre, and you have examples of heroism. You have Manila Road, who for the most part, whatever you want to call them, I don't think of them as a Christian band. I don't know if they even are, but like everything, it's ascendant. It is directed, it's, it's in the direction of, of light and good and wielding that sword in reflection of the light. You know what I mean? That's what Manila Road sounds like, first of all, when you think about like rendering a soundscape even though it's just guitars and all that shit, it's pagan, and they render an environment that sounds like what's being communicated, where Manila Road is that sword pointed up. It's holding your sword up in the air, and it 
reflecting light. That's what Manila Road actually sounds like, and that's what they a lot of their subject matter dealt with. And then Beharit, where it's just like, you know, an invocation of Satan, and I think that's a good representation too. It makes for a good story. It makes for a good point of reference to hear what that is and to have it sound like that. You think about, like, drawing down the moon. It's not one of these, like, you know, blurry, like, uh, war metal albums that that become so popular with certain people where it's just like, nothing wrong with that, but I'm just saying, like, or even like earlier Beharit, it's more messy, but it's like drawing down the moon. It's very easy to understand. It's very, like punctuated you know the rhythms and everything it's very like mid-paced and easy to process but you still nobody would question the fact that like that is invocating something satanic and they did a really fucking good job of it and a title like drawing down the moon is fucking incredible drawing down the moon i don't know what that's in reference to if it's an original idea uh but there's a reason why beharit needs to be there too there's a reason why beharit uh has carved out their place but i think in metal people want to kind of caricaturize that and you know i think you should look at the full spectrum and you should use that to aid your view of the world and use those as power-ups i mean there are days where because i mean there's it's rare when i i pretty much can listen to metal the metal i like at least at any time and it gives me a power-up doesn't really matter what mood I'm in. If it's something that it's that I already know is one of my things, it's it's in my collection or whatever. Of it, you know, it's like I know that it will do something to me. It's not a matter of if; it's a matter of what it's going to do to me. And more and more, I've decided to be more a little, a little more careful. Where sometimes if I'm if I kind of have that warrior spirit, it's very easy easy to put on something that's a little darker, uh, that is satanic maybe, and kind of revel in that. And sometimes that's fun. Sometimes that's good. You know, sometimes that makes you feel good. It's like that stuff exists for a reason. But when I really want to be on my game, I'll put on Manila Road. And there's a lot of other stuff too. Like I said, I don't really want to get into my taste here. I've never wanted every night's a school night to be very focused on you know, like underground music from like recent decades and stuff. And I I don't, I just, it's not a show where I want, I don't want that to be a big part of it. And even though I did that recent summer show that where I played like Autopsy, you know, like one of the most well-known death metal bands. And that's like, love Autopsy, one of my favorite bands, but it's not like representative of like my full taste in heavy metal. Uh, but I, I've never wanted this show to be about metal at all. And occasionally, especially in the old drunken days, I would like, at the end of a show, after a bunch of drinks, I would throw on, you know, I'd close out an episode with some metal song and stuff. And I probably won't do that kind of thing again. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, I think Manila Road is a great go-to. And that's also one of those bands that bridges a lot of gaps. They're kind of like a, a lesser known Iron Maiden in the sense that, a lot of different people I know can come together over that and nobody feels like they have ownership over it. Cause the thing about music fans is especially like it's something that's like still true, but it's like, you know, when it used to be harder to find weird music or lesser known music, people would take ownership of it as fans. And there's very little art and media out there that does that to people where, and I, I see it in myself all the time where even just doing every night to school night, I'm like, I feel like I take this sense of ownership over the stuff I play, even though it's not mine. In a lot of cases, I don't even own an original copy. You know, I'm not one of these like massive record collectors who owns like everything. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have time. I don't have the money. And in recent years, I, you know, I haven't been doing that as much. Uh, But yet, just even playing like 
a song on my weird little corner of the world podcast. Like I still feel this sense of ownership and almost like, like some, like a friend of mine, like a year ago sent me something on YouTube. Uh, it was, uh, like some new artist, a girl covering Jimmy J run wild, which, you know, that was a song I played multiple times in one of the old episodes. And I used to consider, consider it kind of like, like Jimmy, J, uh, Jimmy, <laughs> Uh, Jimmy J is, you know, kind of the patron saint of the show in some ways because his music just had such a profound effect on me a number of years back around leading up to me starting doing this show. And it was this, this girl doing this modern new version of Jimmy J, one of my favorite Jimmy J songs. And I felt like, <laughs> I felt like, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. Like, like I felt, you know, like ready for war. You know what I mean? Like hearing this, someone do an injustice to a relatively unknown song that personally resonated with me made me want to go to war over it. How dare she do that? How dare she? How dare I play the song on my fucking podcast? You know, I mean, you can keep going further and further back with that. And, you know, I wasn't actually mad. I was just, but I was just kind of like, well, of course, of course, someone did this. And of course it sucked. And of course I'm mad, but that is something we do. We kind of feel this sense of ownership over music. And it's not just something that happens in more niche genres where you have collectors and people who are much more invested and and engaged in like the details of music and all that. You also see it with even just people with the most mainstream taste. People will be like, well, I was into that before everybody else. They feel this sense of ownership, and then it's almost like the more people, especially people they don't like, that get into something they like, the more people distance themselves from it. So we really deeply personalize music, and I don't even think we've come to scratch the surface of what that is or what that means. But again, I think it fits into you know our own personal adaptive paganism, and I think Christianity can do that, and I think that's one thing that you know, a lot of metalheads and a lot of metal subculture is missing when they just out and out reject Christianity. Because you have all these snide new people, these secular atheist people who they love to say things like, well, uh, Easter was originally a pagan holiday. Christianity just stole from all the pagan holidays. Oh, yeah, that you celebrating Christmas? That was that was Yule. That was you will. That was once called you will. That was oh Sam Hain. Oh, you you celebrating Halloweeny, huh? Are you celebrating Halloweeny this year? Well, it's really called uh, Sam Hain, but you better not pronounce it that way because it's pronounced so in. It's pronounced so in, so in. Uh, that's how people sound. They they get the snide about Christianity, and they're like, "Don't you know that's based on a pagan holiday?" Well, can't you take a fucking step back and recognize that Christianity might be paganism? Can you take a step back and realize that Christianity might be uh, an adaptation of paganism and the fact that it has absorbed components of traditional paganism that make it harder for you to LARP like your ancestors? You know, like, don't you realize that in Christianity absorbing that, they might be a, a new, like, umbrella paganism that itself can evolve and adapt. And it's no surprise that there's a new Christian movement going on. It's a no surprise that a lot of different people in a lot of different places are finding some kind of resonance with the ideas presented in Christianity. And I think part of that interest is people realizing that those pagan roots shine through 
pretty fucking bright. And it is a brightness, and that's why it's attractive after decades of... Let's role-play that we're Satan. Oh, let's pretend to be the bad guy. And there's no good guys anyway. So we might as well be the bad guy after all the movies, after music doing that, you know, after metal going in that direction, after horror movies taking off, where it's like, oh, you know, this is a glorification of darkness. And, uh, you know, even though it's like the protagonist is usually a good person, everybody's focused on the monster, and the monster is really the star of the show. Like, after decades of that, you know, why would Christianity not resonate with people a little more? And why would we not, with all of our, you know, knowledge and, you know, Wikipedia at our fingertips, uh, why would we not start to see the parallels between these ideas and where these ideas blend together? So, while someone who, like, is just they're just opposed to the word Christianity. It doesn't, you could change the word and they would probably be completely fine with it. But you know, someone who just, they hear Christianity and they're like, that's going to make all my patches fall off my jacket. If I get into Christianity or if I even accept the possibility that there's some philosophical value to Christianity, all the patches are going to fall off my jacket. My list is going to fall off my body. I'm going to have to get a new list. Um, I'm going to have to change everything. No, you won't. No, you won't. Uh, no, but in the same way that people, I think, fear that for that reason, they want to point out how, like, there's some... They, they point out the fact that, like, Christianity stole... And I think, you know, on, in the sense that, you know, Christian uh, imperialism... I think something is to be said for the way that Christian imperialism, you know, uh, hurt people, and in that way may have crushed existing... crushed and co-opted existing pagan ideas, and that's a whole other discussion. But in terms of the actual, like, celebrations and the values, it's like, well, if Christianity was this truly imperialistic force throughout time that just ate things up and spit them out, why did they decide to hold on to these holidays? Like, why did they find value in them? Why are we still celebrating them today in a country that is has become very secular. Why are we still celebrating them? Why did they find value in them? And where did those pagan ideas come from? And were those pagan ideas, was, was some, you know, pagan philosophy not just an earlier version of Christianity in that it too co-opted previously existing ideas? You know, you can keep tracing it back further and further, and your ancestors standing around in a circle pouring honey wine onto a plant while, like, lighting a candle on their kid's head might have been taken from some other tribe that they, you know, broke down and brought into their own. You know, you never really know, but uh, there is a certain paganism to Christianity that I think is, that people are waking up to. And it's not, uh, it's not something they're going to find in church. It's not something they're going to decide to get into without having some sort of activation. I think activation is a key word in all this, because so much of this is inside of you, and it's the reason why Eastern philosophy, Eastern spirituality, uh, Taoism, will say, you know, everything you need is already inside of you, because it's this idea that something needs to activate it, and that's why epiphanies feel so familiar when they happen, because they're already inside of you, and something activated it, so it's, it's more of an, oh, yeah that's right feeling, but I've never thought of it that way, than it is just a, like, 
oh my God, you blow my mind. You know, it is mind blowing, but it's like your mind is being blown from within, not from without, uh, something like that. But, you know, heavy metal is, is part of that process. It's part of that process of, you know, that Jungian individuation where you have, uh, you know, it's done from within. Again, it's, it's, a, it's something that comes from within, not from the outside. And heavy metal will do that because as much as there are these like subcultures and communities that I'm being critical of surrounding heavy metal, it's something that people find on their own. It's usually people who are alienated or feel outside or at odds with modern society who find metal, even though it is being communicated through these modern means like CDs, tapes, records, MP3s, YouTube at this point. You know, even though it is being communicated that way, even though it is electric, you know, it's still it's it's something that people find on their own and it it doesn't feel completely modern. And uh, that's hard to really put into words beyond that. It's something that they, but they come to it on their own as an individual. And it is that sort of individualism and having these points of reference like good and bad. And most metalheads are good. That's the funny thing is like, even though people do get into this satanic imagery and alcoholism and, you know, just this sort of pointless nihilism, like metal definitely attracts that. You know, the people tend to be a little more well-balanced in my opinion than they you know, ought to be, you know, when you think about these, how morbid metal is, and, you know, that's a whole other thing, is like the whole, like, it's not very politically correct, it's not this, but yet it's still subversive, and in that sense, I think metal could very well be itself a common ground in the current culture war, to go back to that, where, because metal, you know, it's like, it's funny, because I remember in the 80s, like, the Dead Kennedys did a song on one of their later albums that was, like, calling metal right-wing, and, you know, because... it was politically incorrect and because they did like to use dark imagery, you know, even Slayer got into, you know, concentration camp themes and stuff without promoting it because there's there's that element of metal, too, that's, you know, coming from the perspective of an observer or even role playing as the worst possible thing there is where you will see in heavy metal, you will see not just role-playing as Satan, but role-playing as a Nazi, role-playing as this or that. And from an outsider's perspective, that's like, oh, shit, these guys are scary and bad and they're going to do something horrible. But despite how popular heavy metal is and the fact that most metalheads are open to really morbid and scary shit, so few of them actually ever do anything bad. These mass shooters are not heavy metal record collectors. I'm sure there's crossover. I'm sure some of these people have found heavy metal because it's angry. They found that some of the, you know, but it's, it's again, like, you know, these aren't people though, who have like a nuanced take in most cases. I remember seeing something online when uh, the Virginia tech shooter happened when that guy shot up a school. And something that stood out to me is I had seen like an obituary for one of the kids who got shot. He was a, a college student and there was a link to his MySpace, and so I went to it, and he, he like his list of bands was all like underground metal, like he was into like Sodom, you know, that's the one that stood out. Like in in the MySpace days, you used to be able to put a song on your uh, on your MySpace, and he had a Sodom song, and he got shot and killed in in a at college in a school shooting, and then I remember the shooter. Uh, of Virginia Tech, like his roommate said he would listen to the same collective soul song over and over again. 
Who's the psycho? The guy who listens to music about Satan or the guy who listens to the song about collect or the collective soul, like pop song from the nineties, that, that popular, like alternative rock band collective soul, you know, who's this, who's going to be the psycho. It's going to be the collective soul guy, not the guy who has an, a passion for heavy metal and is, and founded on his own as an individual and is looking at good and evil is looking at good and evil in both real, realistic terms. Like, like I said, like basically what, like Satan and Hitler have the, the same roles where Satan is the mythology, myth, myth, ugh. Satan is the, m- 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 Satan makes you stutter. Satan is the mythological version of Hitler and Hitler himself has become mythologized in certain ways. He was an evil man, and he's come to embody the absolute essence of evil in the same way that Satan did for generations. And as we've become more secular, we've projected that onto people. And those people are bad, and they're evil, and they were powerful, and Hitler is the best example. I can't think of a better example than Hitler, honestly. I really can't. If you needed a human being to be the realistic essence of evil— you know, what we know about Hitler certainly fits that. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, and for metal to explore that is exploring the reality of evil as well as the mythology of evil. And it is balanced out by a lot of metal that does look toward the light. And by that, I don't necessarily mean God or Christian metal, although I think there is some really great Christian metal. Uh but it's at least like the pursuit of heroism. It's the pursuit of value. And that's something that was always missing that I was, you know, my little flirtation in like ninth grade with punk rock was very short lived uh, because it didn't offer that. And I, you know, I've already been doing this for an hour and 10 minutes now almost. And I could, if I were to bring punk rock and other music into this, I would, this would go on forever. It truly would be like a four hour podcast about both the pros and cons of things like punk rock, you know, cause I can see the good side of it. I can see where good came of good came out of it. And it contributed even in some way to like some aspects of metal that I like, not maybe not directly, but in terms of like DIY ethic, you know, taking priority. Although that's a great example of retconning. Let me, here we go. Here we go. Three hours, baby. We're retconning. Like after punk rock came out, there was this idea that like, Oh, DIY was invented by punk. The first people to start their own record labels or do it themselves or bands to release their own records is punk. And, you know, on the Every Night's a School Night show, uh, that's a great example, where even though I'm not this serious record collector or anything, I do know a little bit about it. I do own records. I do have a collection. Uh, And the amazing thing is people were doing that back then. You know, as long as records have been around, people were doing their own presses. And yeah, it might not have taken off. It might not have had a catchy name like DIY. There might not have been a movement around it. But human beings are pagans, and they always know how to make use of the tools available to them. And people were releasing their own records and creating their own underground networks. And they weren't running around marketing it that way because they were trying to get well-known. You know, they weren't caught in this catch-22 of we want to be respected and known and we want attention, but we don't want to be famous. We want to be famous in our terms. You know, it's like that sort of attitude where it's whereas like, you know, earlier on you had just as much DIY and like you think about the big record labels and a lot of those started with some kind of DIY ethic. It's like you can't forget that McDonald's was started by like the McDonald's brothers or whatever, you know, not that I 
I know the history, but I, I feel like I know that. It wasn't McDonald's started by like just two guys with a hamburger stand. You know, you can't forget that, that like that DIY ethic is a core part of capitalism. And I have no reason to defend capitalism, but I just want to say it for what it is. You know, doing things for yourself and building yourself up and building your business up. That's what capitalism is in theory. And it's been done over and over again. And punk rock came out and it was a great marketing coup because they were like, oh, hey, guess what? We're the first ones to do this. We're the first ones to create an underground network of people who support each other outside of, you know, you know, the mainstream. And, uh, you know, we're doing it ourselves and we're going to make it all we're going to give it a certain look. And, you know, we want to attract a certain kind of audience. And I, I don't think it was all like conspired. I don't think you know, early punk was a conspiracy or anything to do that. I think a lot of it just happened. And maybe they didn't know that, maybe it just didn't resonate with them that all this stuff is just at the core of American values for that matter. And it's gotten distorted and fucked. And like, you know, these big companies, everything gets fucked, you know, but uh, it's still, you can't forget the fact that this stuff has been going on and you see it early on in metal. I mean, you think about Bathory being released by his father, which of course was in the wake of punk, but still, just that sort of mentality, it goes back. It's it's paganism. That is an example of paganism adapting, adaptive paganism, using the tools available to you to do what you can in a way that makes sense and hopefully has value, even if you don't know what that is, because, you know, putting that candle on your kid's head and lighting it and, like, breaking a gourd open over a, you know... A piece of wood <laughs> uh, while your daughter wears a dress made out of, you know, dandelions, you know, whatever, whatever paganism is to you, you don't really know what it's achieving. You know, people, when they did these old rituals, they didn't really know what they were doing. There was such a heavy element of mystery, but they felt like they were activating something. Activation. That's what it comes down to. Using the tools that are available to you to activate something. And if you have a group, like if you're born into an environment like where there is like a strong group identity of values and stuff like that, you know, as a teenager, you might reject it or whatever, but that's a good foundation. You know, if you're able to be part of a group that has a healthy set of values and some degree of even ritual and all of that, you know, if you're born into a neo-pagan family, you're probably better off than if you were born to, you know, just some family who, I don't know, who, who has nothing like that. Uh, But it's amazing that so many of us find our way through these things not that way, by not being born into a family that does that. Uh, You know, we're not all Beck. We're not all like Beck and we're third generation Scientologists. You know what I mean? (laughs) We're not all like Beck who like our, our grandfather was a Fluxus artist who joined Scientology probably as a gag and then his family ended up in it for generations. You know, uh, a lot of us have to find out things on our own. A lot of us have to find Scientology on our own. Uh, but we do, and metal's a great example of that path of you get into these ideas on an individual level because you're not identifying with everything around you. You find that there's other people like that, even if you argue with them over like your favorite record and can only agree on Iron Maiden. It's like you still you end up finding that there are other people there, and you go through some kind of process and you're looking at things that are ancient and immortal, like good and evil and everything in between. 
So I'm not surprised that heavy metal reinforces the warrior spirit in people. I'm not surprised that heavy metal music, that heavy metal riffs do that themselves. I'm not surprised that on every level you can find that experience and that path, and that so many metalheads do have a pretty secure sense of self-identity. You know, even if they're too insecure to be to think about Christianity, it's like they still have a pretty strong sense of identity, which isn't true for very many groups or especially individuals in this world today. And I don't think it's a surprise that, you know, metalheads aren't nearly as violent or scary as uh, they may look or try to be or how, you know, you know, and and they kind of prove my theory wrong. Like my whole thing about, oh, you should surround yourself by like, you'd be careful what you, you, what you expose yourself to artistically because it might corrupt you. You know, as much as I like harp on that, it's like, I think metalheads actually are an argument against that too. I don't think I'm completely wrong, but I, I think, you know, metalheads, it's like they surround themselves with morbid stuff and manage to stay fairly well grounded. Uh, so there is something interesting, and you know, I, I think that metalheads could and maybe will serve as as some sort of bridge in this culture war, because uh, they do have uh, interests in common with the sort of like anarchist punk people, even though it's very different. It's like there is some sort of common ground there, even just on an artistic level. It's like, oh, we both wear leather, and we like distorted guitars. It's just that I, I feel that I could joke around about anything, and you're trying to censor me. You know, it's, there's those little differences, um, those little cracks that are a centimeter wide, but they go so deep. Uh, but no, I do think that metal could potentially be some sort of cultural unifier, even on a smaller level. And I'm not going to promote that. I'm not going to try to be that. I'm just interested in living my life and, and doing what I feel is right. But maybe in doing that, Maybe we will see some sort of bridge. Maybe it'll be the Rainbow Bridge. The infamous Rainbow Bridge will appear. Everybody can get behind that, maybe. Although even rainbows have been politicized. That Rainbow Bridge will appear, but it's it's not appearing as an advertisement so that gay people will buy your product. <laughs> uh, it turns out, you know, that'd be a great retcon of Norse mythology, being like the Rainbow Bridge... Uh, in Norse mythology, uh, <laughs> was proof that they all just, uh, they were celebrating pride even back then. No. No, but the real reason heavy metal was and is attractive to me, and hopefully I'm not retconning my initial interest in it as a teenager by being like, oh, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I really got into it for these reasons. But no, I think somewhere deep down, the appeal of heavy metal across all genres of it that I like, both bands I like and bands I don't like, I'm not even talking about my own taste here. I'm even talking about things that fall outside of my taste. But I think as a whole, heavy metal, real heavy metal, it it gives you access to paganism on your own terms, which is how it always should be. This land is mine God gave this land to me this brave this golden land to me and when the morn 
morning sun reveals her hills and plains. I see a land where children can.